Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. On November 18th and 21st in 1836, an American military force of militia, Tennessee Volunteers, Alabama Creek Mercenaries, and United States Marines and Army soldiers, led by the Territorial Governor of Florida, General Richard K. Call, clashed with Seminole forces, led by Chiefs Osuchi and Yahaluchi at Wahoo Swamp. The swamp is a large area of wetlands and cypress hammocks in today's Sumter County, Florida. This military engagement of the Second Seminole War occurred approximately 50 miles northeast of Fort Brooke in Tampa and 35 miles south of Fort King in Ocala. The infamous Dade battlefield was only a few short miles distant, although ever-present in commanders' and soldiers' minds and hearts. The battles were militarily inconclusive, as were so many in 1836 near the cove of the Withlacoochee River. Call had managed to force the Seminole from their strongholds there, but they thwarted his further advance at the battles of Wahoo Swamp. The Seminole then escaped south to the unmapped Florida wilderness. Call's campaign had failed to achieve its objective of neutralizing the Seminole resistance to involuntary removal. The U.S. government replaced him as commander of forces in Florida a short while later, installing regular Army Major General Thomas Sidney Jessup in his place. In this episode, archaeologist Sean Norman describes the Battle of Wahoo Swamp, its aftermath, and its significance in the Second Seminole War. In our next episode, he will describe what he and the survey team from the Gulf Archaeological Research Institute, or Gary, from Crystal River, Florida, reported and concluded about the site and what purported to happen there. Sean Norman, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Sean, why survey this battle? For as large of a battle as it is, it really doesn't get a whole lot of attention, especially relative to something like Dade's battle. On top of that, yes, there are only a handful of accounts, usually reports, defensive by the officers, and almost no information on the Seminole side. I think this is also an engagement that doesn't feature Osceola, so it tends to get less attention. Protagonists for the Seminoles are Cloud and Jumper. Don't tend to get nearly as much focus as anyone else. And then we have no information from their side, despite the fact that this was literally taking place right next to Seminole villages into the heart of the Seminole strongholds during the early parts of the war. What is the problem with the historical accounts of the Battle of Wahoo Swamp? everyone has a bias what they're writing so you're always trying to figure out who's the subject what are they trying to get across and all that what do you mean when you say some of the records are defensive in nature officers are usually trying to uphold their reputation and those are most of the people who are writing from this regard call is having to defend his actions because he's relieved of command midway through the campaign even before the battle of wahoo swamp his emphasis is on defending his actions and defending his reputation. He does this for the rest of his life. You take Guild's account. Guild's account is written by a third party 30 or 40 years after the battle. There are dates that he gets wrong for events that he was actually at. It's great to have an eyewitness count. It's just you know that there are some issues with it. You've touched on this in other podcasts. 
What do you mean when you say some of the terms used may not be appropriate to Florida terrain? There are going to be some inherent inaccuracies if they either can't describe the land accurately or misinterpret, altering the way the battle goes. A lot of people also end up writing about portions of the battle that they didn't actually participate in, mainly the concluding part. All of this gives you ideas about the battle, but you know that there are going to be some inherent inaccuracies because of that. Sean, give us some examples of the inconsistent narrative descriptions that different writers have used. You have the way the, the battle ends is where Major David Moniak gets shot in a wetland at the, the final defensive stand. And that is described in a whole variety of manners, ranging from you know, he died in a swamp or a creek to they were trying to cross the Withlacoochee River. Things like the term hammock is often misused. They use it to mention any even remotely upland wooded area, whether it's still a swamp or not. Nowadays, we would refer to a bunch of sloughs through the area, and that's not really used at all. You have inconsistent terminology. You have to figure out there are at least patterns that you can kind of devise from if you look at the readings over a long period of time to where how they divide up the landscape, essentially pine barrens and swamps. A little more complicated than that, but you have to get into their mindset and how they're describing the landscape. That's extremely problematic here. Was call relief for incompetence or because the government wanted a regular army officer in charge? It's a combination. Call, we say, the commander of the war. Formally, he's not. Jessup is always the commander as soon as uh, Winfield Scott withdraws from that theater. But since Jessup's preoccupied, Call is given permission by the War Department to execute a campaign. And so for all intents and purposes, Call is the effective commander. Just like Clinch is the commander at the beginning of the war, even though Winfield Scott is still a superior commander of the Eastern Department and could override him at any given time. Call is relieved on November 4th. He's relieved, but well before he even gets to the Battle of Wahoo Swamp because of his retrograde movements and his inability to resupply his army. The main problem with that is just his October 18th report never makes it to Washington, D.C. They hear rumors of the engagement not from Call or from a report, but they hear it from rumors in a newspaper from some of the Tennessee volunteers who have gone up closer to Jacksonville who are talking. Jackson was infuriated with him without understanding Call's side of the situation and rapidly relieves him of command. Now, Jessup was already in Florida at the time. He had concluded his actions in Alabama. If Jessup hadn't been available, maybe the War Department would have been less keen to outright replacing Call, given the lack of commanders in the area. But ultimately, Call was relieved of command, but still allowed to execute the at least another month of the campaign. Call was dual-hatted as governor and military commander. That's correct. He was the brigadier general of the Florida militia, which is why he was in command of volunteer forces or militia forces at Duncan Clinch's battle on the Withlacoochee. How unusual was it for a governor to take control and wage a campaign with the state or territorial militia? This is the Jacksonian era. This is that first era of U.S. American heroes, at least to the people. You're getting this first wave of these frontier Indian fighters. You'll get like William Henry Harrison, Andrew Jackson to build their fame from this. There are a lot of politicians who are involved in this engagement, and it's seen as a way of bringing yourself up. This kind of military political thing is relatively common at this time period. Now, I, I can't tell you how many either state governors or territorial governors actually executed something like this, but it's very common among representatives, both state and federal 
And then you continue to see it well into Mexican war, where it used as a way to parlay people like Franklin Pierce into the political spectrum. Cole had served with Andrew Jackson during the early Creek Wars and Jackson's invasion of Florida. And while Cole really wasn't a combat soldier, he had served as a staff officer and as a strategist. How does the Battle of Wahoo Swamp fit into his command time? It's the concluding actions of Call's campaign. Call had left Tallahassee with a volunteer force of Tennesseans slowly in mid-September and then works his way towards the Cove of the Withlacoochee using Fort Drain as a base camp. And along the way, he collects additional units, U.S. regulars under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Pierce. He gets regiment of Creek volunteers under Revit Colonel John Lane. And then eventually when Reed rejoins him, he gets some Florida volunteers with him. What is the setting for the Battle of Wahoo Swamp, and what happened there? First Battle of Wahoo Swamp, November 18th, Call had split his force. So Call was with the Tennessee volunteers and had been proceeding from the north, or coming down a trail, and they come across a Seminole village that's already burning. They get ready to attack the village, but it's essentially a decoy by the Seminole who are hiding in the tree line and are able to open up fire from a extended position inside the tree line, straight on the exposed Tennessee troops to drop to the ground and try to return fire from the prone position. And then after a certain period of time, they are able to get up, charge the hammock, and then fairly close quarter gunfight ensues that turns into a fighting withdrawal. Eventually, U.S. troops have to withdraw around sunset or later in the evening to make it back to camp. Why was the campaign even necessary? Winfield Scott had concluded his campaign in April 1836 after repeated campaigns with Clinch's brief offensive. You've got Gaines's failed offensive and then Scott. Well, Scott wasn't nearly as big of a failure as the other offensives, but there were very few at large engagements, one near the Withlacoochee River. He was never able to really capture the Seminole in large quantities, wasn't able to remove them, wasn't able to catch them in battle. So Scott's campaign mostly accomplished just gaining intelligence on the Cove of the Withlacoochee and established some more paths. He was ready to put a hold to the war for a bit, mostly partially due to the sickly season. It just becomes insanely hard to conduct field operations in the summer at this time, a lack of established roads means that the rain makes the terrain impassable. You've got bugs and consequently disease are much more common during this time. It's just harder just to maintain the health and status of the troops, significantly more different to move the troops around and keep them fully supplied. As we've learned, keeping them fully supplied at any point during the early war is pretty difficult. We're fighting multiple wars at the same time. So Scott is preoccupied also with the Creek resistance in Alabama. Around the spring, early summer, the Creek War is actually getting pretty difficult for the U.S. Scott has to turn his attention to more pressing matters. Florida is on the extreme frontier of the United States, probably not the most vital of wars at the time. That means that there's going to be a gap. Call's now territorial governor starting in April. He's got a major crisis on his hands in a territory that he's responsible for. While he was zealous before he was the governor, he now has an absolute reason to put an end to this. While Scott can go off, Call has a persistent problem every day he needs to handle. He thinks that he's got enough military experience to do it. After the first battle, then what happened? After the retreat, Cole ends up taking a few days off and sets up camp near Gade's Battle because he had split his force prior to heading towards the Wahoo Swamp. The south route 
the route that had crossed the Withlacoochee River and traveled south and west of the Withlacoochee River was Colonel Pierce with the Creek Regiment and then U.S. Regulars. Cole wanted to pursue the Seminoles, but had actually sustained some decent casualties in the process that had been pretty hard fighting. He wanted to attack the Seminole in full force. Originally, Pierce had been sent to the south and west of the river just in case the Seminole were going to try to cross back over and retreat from the Wahoo Swamp when Cole came. But after the November 18th engagement, he just wanted to wait and reunite with him. How did it unfold similar to the November 18th battle? On November 20th, Pierce had reunited. He had crossed over the Withlacoochee River around where Fort David would later get reconstructed and then rejoined. On November 21st, they marched back to the starting scene of the November 18th battle and commenced the action in a similar manner. And there what happened is they formed a battle line at the same tree line where the November 18th engagement had started. It was the Creek Regiment located on the left flank, Tennessee Volunteers, or on the right flank, the U.S. regulars and Florida volunteers were in the center. The right flank, however, was greatly depleted. At the start of the campaign, they had 1,200 mounted Tennesseans. By this point, they had literally lost hundreds of horses. They had been suffering deserters since they left Swanee Old Town at the end of September. And then they had been periodically sending their sick off. On top of that, they decided to hold back a significant portion of men to guard both the camp and to set a call with the command post about two miles away from the battle. Call is never actually physically on the scene of the battle and probably isn't really calling most of the shots. Tennesseans are greatly withered at, at best at half strength. They form up along the same hammock line and the Seminoles have taken up the same position. You're talking about battle lines that are supposed to be a mile long. Once again, the Seminoles opened fire from the tree line across the entire exposed U.S. force. This time, however, the U.S. forces charged a little bit earlier instead of getting pinned down, and they enter the hammock. Then you have close quarters fighting, and then that proceeds into a fighting withdrawal. Similar to November 18th engagement, where Beminal just take up every defensive position along the way, fire off a few rounds, and wait until the U.S. forces approach, and then withdraw again. That's the edges of clearings, edges of hammocks, the opposite banks of wetlands, and just anything they can do to slowly wither away and exhaust the pursuing forces. How difficult was communication and coordination during the battle? And how difficult was it to maintain command and control? In this engagement, really, nobody probably would have had any idea what anyone else is doing. And that is apparent in the literature, where you have some people are just out in the middle of nowhere, chest deep in water. Other people are just observing the battle from other portions. But the thing is, you've got very dense vegetation, and it's all pretty low. There are a couple of uplands in the area, but it's a series of sloops. You would have had units disappear quite easily. Call is several miles away from the battlefield. Call's been suffering from health issues this entire time. That is at least why he's eventually removed command. Call actually can't see the battle. None of it would have been visible to him at all. So he would have been lying on runners or messengers. And the problem with that is, again, inside the battle, most units probably couldn't find each other. There probably wasn't a ton of communication between officers unless they were actually right next to each other, which is the way the battle concludes, is once most of the forces gathered into one place. It's really unclear how much Call actually knew what was going on, and probably very little because I don't think the officers kind of knew what was going on at the time. What was Call trying to accomplish with this battle? The goal was to 
just engaged the Seminole any way that they could. I think they had this air of superiority. They always assume that they can overpower them with strength, and they go in there with this confidence. Overall, was their strategy of trying to envelop or any sort of pincer movements or anything like that. I don't think it was anything that complicated. I think their idea was they thought they were going to go in with a European-style battle line and overpower the Seminole, and that's just not the way it worked. Calls Tennessee volunteers certainly had enthusiasm, but one might say they were overenthusiastic to the campaign's detriment. They're prone to going off and pursuing up to a point anyways. I think that's what the thing was, is they would have chased any seminal unit until it was proven that they themselves were in danger. Troops would get distracted beforehand. Like the day before they crossed the Withlacoochee, they see a bunch of smoke and just 50 men just break off without command and just go after this encampment, assuming it's a village or more seminal or something like that. And it turns out it was nothing. General Call had a natural pride and confidence for the volunteers that he commanded. Being a volunteer volunteer commander and being a volunteer during his previous service, he really valued volunteer and militia units, something that a lot of the military commanders did not. They just did not appreciate untrained or minimally trained soldiers. What are some of the positive and negative aspects of the militia? There was something to be said about the type of people that they were trying to muster. That also becomes a problem. Yes, these people could theoretically be backwoodsmen, but they are also absolutely obsessed with remaining mounted. You know, they were a mounted force when they left Tennessee, and in the retrograde movement in October, where Call has to withdraw without supplies, the Tennesseans lose supposedly two to 300 horses just on that mark. By the end of October, maybe half the force might not even be mounted anymore. The delays, it takes them about three weeks in Gary's Ferry. The delays are largely because they want horses. And in my mind, at least, that kind of reduces my vision of the toughness of them. Whereas U.S. artillerymen are buoyed as light infantry throughout this war. They're able to adapt. Don't really see that as well with volunteers. They always wanted to be mounted, which is funny because they're not terribly fast anyways, even when they're mounted, at least as far as marching speed. So I think that's one problem. And then the other thing is part of the reason why some of those troops are held back at the camp and protecting call is some of them were supposed to have been from, I believe the phrase was choice families. So literally they chose people who were considered presumably wealthy and politically aspiring, but they ended up choosing people who they didn't even really want to get shot. I mean, obviously nobody wants to get shot in battle, but you're now scared to even put these people in combat. That's a huge liability when you've got a force, yet only a portion of them are actually usable. There were pay issues. There were different pay rates between militia and volunteers. In the end, the militia and volunteer system was more expensive than the U.S. regular military system during the war. I don't know if there are a lot of benefits to these people other than they're able to keep producing units throughout the war. Why did it become necessary to use the militia? The U.S. Army spread out across the entire southern United States at the time period. They were absolutely necessary. At the start of the war, I think there were only 8,000 men or less. Seven U.S. infantry regiments, four artillery regiments, one dragoon regiment. There are multiple concerns on multiple fronts. Still removing the Cherokee, removing the Creek. They're trying to remove other groups farther out west in Mississippi and Louisiana. They're still having to monitor the situation with Mexico and Texas. Why didn't the Army have a larger standing army? The U.S., after the American Revolution, had really shied away from having a standing army. They allowed Matt Anthony Wayne to maintain a small force that ends up becoming the 
the modern, I believe, first and second regiments. But other than that, the U.S. really didn't want to maintain a standing army. However, persistent war from the conclusion of the American Revolution up to this period meant that they have had to slowly increase the army size. They've had to increase military training, such as at West Point, but they're still reliant on volunteer and militia forces. That gets exacerbated during the Mexican War and the American Civil War, which are 90, 95% fought with volunteer forces. Militia service had a certain cachet within a local community. Service in the army as a soldier, not so much. Why was this the case for service in the regular army? The U.S. Army really wasn't terribly well respected at this time. If you were an officer, you could become a war hero. The average soldier really was not celebrated. They were disrespected by normal society. There were a lot of immigrants and there wasn't considered a respectable job. U.S. citizens just did not like the idea of having a large military force at all. Were citizens still subject to militia duty after serving in the regular army? That is true, yes. Technically, the way the laws are written, we're still subject to militia service to this day. Essentially, nobody's called that up since the start of the 20th century. Okay. What happened with the big engagement and its aftermath? You have the battle line on November 21st, advances into the hammock, and then you get this fighting withdrawal. Descriptions are very wildly between people talking about being chest deep in water and mud, other people talking about vegetation that cuts like knives, and then there are accounts of Major Gardner, who doesn't even really get his horse's hooves wet during the engagement. So you can get this wild variation in terrain as to what happened, but very little coordinated information. What happens is, as the engagement goes on, the Seminoles keep withdrawing. Seminoles actually end up withdrawing faster than the U.S. troops can pursue. The U.S. troops lose track of where the Seminoles went. However, a handful of the creek were able to crack them down or follow them, and they pursued Seminole to a bottleneck point, a pinch point between a ponded section in a creek or a slough or set of like ponds, lagoons, lakes, or something like that. An area with wetlands and a narrow fenceable area in the middle where the U.S. forces would be forced across through this little choke point. The Creek engage the Seminoles. They're transferring fire back and forth. Slowly, different units start pulling up. Major Gardner's able to lead a lot of U.S. regulars to the area, following a little bit of an upland trail. And then Colonel Warren's Florida volunteers show up, and more and more U.S. regulars and Creeks start filing in. Eventually, you, you get elements of the Tennesseans. Now, it becomes a standstill because nobody knows how deep water is. Major Moniak is a Creek graduate of West Point. He's a volunteer in the Creek unit at this time. On David Moniak, what happened as far as you can tell? He goes to ascertain the depth of the water and then is shot down in the process. Nobody else tries to cross the waterway. The battle fizzles out. It just turns into a defensive stand. Eventually, enough officers get there. They discuss. They're now running low on ammunition. And then they've been campaigning now for the last time they resupplied. So they're also just running generally low on supplies. And they decide to withdraw from the engagement. What is the controversy about Moniac's purported actions? The other thing that's often mentioned is that if Moniac tried to charge the seminal position, trying to lead that. The problem is, is hearing the order of when they get there is difficult to determine. A lot of the accounts, for example, Guild has an account of that. Well, Guild was at the Tennessee unit. Guild wasn't there. Guild might have showed up at the very, very end. What we have is we have the general order in which units showed up. I can tell you that the Creek were early on there and the U.S. regulars were definitely there early. Fewer accounts mention 
Biden warns Florida volunteers. Is it likely that Moniac was there in the first group? Yeah, that's quite possible. He would have been one of the highest commanding officers in the Greek unit with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harvey Brown being the only one overranking him. Yes, that is possible that Moniac would have been there. When you look at the areas that we looked at today, the water is not particularly deep. Granted, there's a lot of drainage and all that. I don't know exactly whether or not the engagement starts with Moniac crossing or Moniac crosses in the process. It's just hard because there aren't a lot of great eyewitness accounts. What we really need is more from the Creek perspective, but it would be nice to get the Creek perspective, not from the officers, because Creek aren't given a ton of credit anyways. It's white officers doing the discussion. There are conflicting accounts about where they actually were in regard to the Withlacoochee. Obviously, the accounts do very make it sound like he was in some sort of large waterway that he could have drowned out there. And you get discussions that maybe he was in the Withlacoochee River. They would have known it if they had been in the Withlacoochee Stream. And very apparent when you get to that section of the Withlacoochee River, if they had been in the river. Muskets would have been almost at a maximum effective range if the Seminoles had been on the opposite bank of the river itself. What was the aftermath then? After the engagement concludes at Oahu Swamp, Cole withdraws back to the encampment near Dade's battlefield. From there, they're running low on supplies, and for once on the campaign, they're actually low on ammunition. The plan is to go to another supply depot. At the beginning of the campaign, they were going to rely on Swanee Old Town. Then there was going to be a supply depot built near the mouth of the Withlacoochee River, Fort Brook near Tampa Bay. What they're doing is they're going to drop back to their next supply depot, which is Volusia. It's a landing on the St. John's River, present day Aster. Call had already sent some Tennesseans to Gary's Ferry to ensure that there would be supplies waiting for him at Volusia. They're uh, going to withdraw back there, resupply, and then they intend on continuing the campaign. They proceed up there, but sometime around the beginning of December, Call approaches Volusia and then receives the message that he's been relieved of command. Call's in bad health. Takes him a little bit while to respond, but eventually on December 4th, he responds and starts defending his actions from October. Then there's no news even of the Wahoo Swamp actions yet. He has to resend his report from October and try to deal with that. Meanwhile, the same message has been sent to Jessup, and Jessup's finally notified. Jessup's already in Florida. He's been setting up Fort Brook and has been slowly bringing additional troops down. Jessup then immediately takes command and sets out on his portion of the war, which is he has the same instructions from the War Department to set up a series of supply depots around the Cove of the Whippacoochee and just truthfully remove the Seminole at all costs. Jessup immediately starts building the fort system, which becomes Fort Armstrong, which is near Dade's Battlefield, Fort Foster on the Hillsborough River, replacing the former location of Fort Alabama, and then eventually Fort Dade. Called Jessup rest stop for a little bit. He goes to Jacksonville and then by the end of the year makes it back to Tallahassee. In summarizing, what did Cole accomplish with this battle? The main thing is, is, is strategically, you would say that Cole lost. He surrenders the field. He holds nothing. He really doesn't capture any Seminoles. Along the campaign, they burn half dozen villages or so. They're all empty. They capture a handful of people. They cause some loss. So there's not really a major immediate impact. But Cole's friendship with Andrew Jackson is in tatters. He's not really getting much of a sympathetic ear from Benjamin Butler in the U.S. War Department. He's being attacked for his October operations, not even really getting credit at this point for any success or lack of success at Wahoo. How fair were the criticisms of Call? 
Cole was definitely limited on the early part of the campaign. Had a lot of similar problems that the others have had. Largely, some of the supply issues aren't really his fault. General Reed met a series of challenges that he was unprepared for and took forever to get the main supply depot constructed. Call may come in for greater criticism because, besides being a military commander, he's also a politician, the territorial governor, and those go hand in hand. That's entirely true because politics and military actions are inherently linked. When you have a president general like Jackson, that's just the way it goes. And yeah, people are really basing their futures on this. You are going to get a ton of bias in the media. Sean discussed the bias in party newspapers and how they can shape public opinion, even if the facts of a battle do not support the narrative that they're presenting. In the newspapers, it comes across the big victory that he was able to engage a large force in the Wahoo Swamp and survive. Cole is lauded as a hero to the public. He's greeted by a parade and speeches in Tallahassee and newspapers defend him, saying that the War Department's being too harsh and that he's a hero. Neither Call nor Jessup realized at the time that the war would be moving south from here. Wahoo Swamp is really the last major engagement in this theater. After this, the war will move south. Your major battles will be things at Loxahatchee and Okeechobee. There is an argument that the sustained fighting of 1836 in the cove of the Withlacoochee did wear down the Seminole to a certain extent, thus paving the way for the so-called capitulation at Fort Dade under General Jessup. What does happen afterwards is there are no more engagements, and in February 1837, Jessup is first approached by Seminole leaders talking about a truce. In March, this is eventually what comes known as capitulation of Fort Dade. Most major Seminole leaders actually agree to end the fighting, and they agree to move out west. They start gathering several hundred Seminole outside of Fort Brooke, whereas in the beginning of June, I believe it is, Sam Jones and Osceola either release or force these Seminoles who are going to voluntarily leave to escape. And thus ends the capitulation and the war continues on and then Jessup holds a grudge. Now, whether or not that was a legitimate effort for peace, we don't know. We do know that there was an attempt to at least sign some form of a treaty with Gaines at Camp Izzard. Seminole are, at least to some degree, interested in ending the war, except that treaty would have kept the Seminole at least south of the Wipicoochee River, so they would have remained in Florida. Alternatively, this could have been essentially a guise to give the Seminole some respite and possibly get them some additional supplies from the U.S. government and would allow them to start replanting crop in the spring so that they would be able to resupply that fall. These are definitely possibilities. How did the other battles along the Withlacoochee compare to what Call was able to do in the Battle of Wahoo Swamp? 1836 is a rough year for U.S. citizens if you're gauging the success of your country by war. You've got Dade's Battle, which is by the populace viewed as a massacre. Look at the way the other battles had gone. Clinch's battle on the Withlacoochee, Clinch holds off the Seminole force, but immediately turns around because he suffers 25% losses to his regulars. And then Gaines' battle gets represented in various ways. But the honest truth of it was they were very close to losing a significant portion of the total U.S. Army by losing Gaines. That could have happened. That force could have been destroyed if Seminoles probably saw it necessary. God has the largest force in Florida at the time, but he's never really able to even engage the Seminole in large battles. Aside from after they cross the Withlacoochee, he never catches them in force at all. The way the public is viewing it is anything that's not Camp Izzard or Dade's Battle is almost worth celebrating at this point. 
Something that complicates matters is the army can't actually show how many Seminole they have killed in the battle. Seminole casualties of the battle are unknown. There's all kinds of speculation, but again, I really don't trust the U.S. account of casualties because U.S. forces regularly embellish the size of the Seminole forces. That way, when they lose, they make it sound like they lost to a far superior force. And then they have a tendency to embellish the amount of losses, despite the fact that they almost never get a chance to actually tally Seminole casualties. Seminoles are very, very good about removing their dead from the battlefield, and their wounded show amazing resilience. The actual numbers are difficult to say. A saving grace recall may be the later recognition that really nobody could have evicted the Seminoles from the Withlacoochee. Did Call accomplish his mission of removing the Seminole from the area? No. Would he have been able to continue the campaign? Maybe, but probably not, because nobody was ever actually able to just go into the Cove of the Withlacoochee and remove the Seminole. It just never happened. There are times later on where Armistead will send large troops in to interrupt the Green Corn Dance going on in the vicinity of the Cove of the Withlacoochee that disperses them, but they still control the landscape, especially at this stage of the war. One thing we must keep in mind is that even if Call had somehow achieved a decisive victory over the Seminole in the Cove of the Withlacoochee, they were only one segment of the Seminole populace in Florida. So the war would still go on because there were still Indians to be removed. It's difficult to pin them down. They're all over the place. They're a different group. They're not one unified tribe or nation or anything like that. We know at the end of the war in 1842, there are large groups of them sitting in the Okefenokee Swamp. There are Seminole in the Everglades at this point. There are Seminole on the East Coast. There are Seminole around the Peace River. There are all kinds of other variations. And some of those groups might be given the attribution of Seminole, even though they might not consider themselves Seminole and may not have the same Creek heritage or something like that. They might be more Tecaster, Ais, or, or Calusa in heritage. This is a general war on anyone who's not white in Florida. Obviously, a large portion of the war is about regaining enslaved African Americans. If they were to have found other non-Seminole tribes in Florida, they would have been removed just as well. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a larger problem than just focusing on the Cove of the Withlacoochee. That gave the military, the War Department, a tangible objective. Sean, thanks for an excellent battle summary about Wahoo Swamp. Having set the stage so well, in our next episode, we'll discuss Gary's report on what it discovered from its survey at Wahoo Swamp. For now, though, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. It's always a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roast em, Provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman. Courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.